You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Claire Potter, designer and author of Welcome to the Circular Economy. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We've been enjoying your book. And one thing that I read in Scientific American is human-made stuff now outweighs all life on Earth, including, you know, trees and animals. It's hard to take in. So it really underscores our impact on the planet, which you outline so concisely and accessibly in your book and bringing it down to actionable ideas. Just tell us how you take the three R's, the reduce, reuse, recycle, and you expand upon the the different elements of the circular economy. Yes, the circular economy is something that some people might have heard of, some people might never have heard of. But really, the book is all about trying to encourage people to realize that Whether it's a terminology they know or not, there's actually a lot of stuff they already do. And great example is the three R's. So the reduce, reuse, recycle that we know from the 70s, the 80s. I grew up with the three R's being the thing that we did at school. But when we think about that, the three R's as we've been using it, the reduce, the reuse and the recycle, quite often it's been the recycle, which is the thing that we tend to have been doing maybe the most successfully. It's the thing that's pushed most for industry. Um, And actually, we're pretty good generally in most developed countries in actually recycling our waste. But the first two, the reduce and the reuse, we need to do a little bit more work around those. So the circular economy looks at a hierarchy of needs and a hierarchy of actions that maybe we should be taking instead of jumping immediately to the end of the recycle, for example. So there are lots of things like reducing the amount that you use, reducing the things that you're doing even things like reducing the dairy and the meat in your diet, which could, you know, obviously go towards your carbon footprint and through reusing all the way through repairing and refurbishment and redirecting of stuff. If you don't need it through to other people that might need it and make use of it. Um, And basically just trying to connect the dots. So there isn't anything that escapes the way nature works. Everything is used by something for something. So there isn't any waste. There's nothing that escapes out of the system. And what circularity is trying to do is to kind of knit everything back together, just like nature does. I mean, there's a lot of red tape that comes with everything, but um, legislation can really help, particularly when you think that as individuals, quite often we're trying to do the best we possibly can, but we're trying to do the best we possibly can with sometimes pretty crummy choices that we're given by industry. So it feels that sometimes you're banging your head against a brick wall, that you're trying to reduce your plastic use, for example. So some of the legislation I've been working on in the last couple of years has come from the single-use plastic directive that was the EU's single-use plastic directive to look at how plastic can be reduced from marine litter perspective. So it was a really large report that was written. Uh, and from that, we had legislation that has just started to be written in the last two to three years to help enable the stuff that was recommended in the report. One of those I've been working around is around plastic bottles and lids. And it's even simple things like the fact that plastic lids to beverage containers at the moment can be detached completely. So the lid can escape from the bottle. Whereas from a recycling sense, I know we don't want to be recycling as the primary, but you want to recover as much material as possible. So there's legislation that's coming on board, which means that the actual lid itself will be attached to the body of the container, which means that In theory, you'll be able to keep it attached as long as possible, which means that more material can actually be recovered once it does go into its reprocessing cycle. We need the grassroots activism, but we need industry to actually do better and far better than they're doing now. And legislation is definitely the way forward for that. 
So uh, I started teaching, I think it was about eight years ago. So that was just as a visiting lecturer. And then I was invited to write one of the modules on the product design course, which was around sustainability. At that point, I was like, well, we're using sustainability as a term less in industry. We're trying to be a bit more uh, almost cohesive and think wider than what sustainability can mean, but also trying to make it much tighter with the terminology because sustainability means something different to everybody. Whereas when we talk about circularity, that's got much more of a solidity to it, even though it's got lots of nuances. So that's when my first module came about. It was called the role of design in the circular economy. Because for that, I had to teach what the circular economy was, and of course how the circular economy is changing and expanding. And the lovely thing is teaching product designers, they can see the impact of the decisions that they're going to be making. One of the facts that I give them really early on is that about 80% of a product's environmental impact is decided at the design stage. Those are the decisions that we will be making with our pens or on our computer screens. So we really look at the sort of the circular economy from each of those different standpoints. So everything from waste streams through to designing for disassembly, using case studies all the way along the way, even things like carbon footprinting, what that means, carbon offsetting, what that means, sustainable development goals, what they are, how they might relate, uh, legislation, things that are great, things that are really not so great. Um, and I had one student a few years ago say that she's never been so upset and yet so excited in a module before because I was telling them, this is the latest IPCC report. This is how bad it is. But therefore, this is what we can do about it. And that's what we really need from our next generation is to tell them the truth of what's going on, but then give them the tools to allow them to build back way better than has been done for the generations before. So yeah, working in education is fantastic and really, really enlightening. The questions they ask me, challenging me continually, which is brilliant, and also seeing the ideas they come up with, which literally will change the world. I certainly feel energized by our students as well. Speaking of the IPCC report, do you think we're headed to a two-degree world? Yes. In, in one word, I think we are. I think we're heading to at least two, maybe more. And um, the thing that upsets me most about those reports is not what's contained within them per se, but the fact that such a small amount of change seems to happen. And that's what is so frustrating is that we see, or I see a lot that we have so much concrete science about what needs to happen how behavior needs to change, how infrastructure needs to be invested in. And yet we have politicians that are much more concerned about doing something completely different. And it, it really frustrates me because there will be a tipping point where we can no longer live in certain places around the world. And that might already be coming. We're seeing devastating heat waves across much of the world already places, particularly in New Delhi, I think the temperature has, has, has dramatically increased over the last few years. And we're going to see a huge amount of impact across the whole of the central band of the world, unless we have action. And of course, like anything, if you start doing something early, you know, you can make small incremental changes that can have a bigger impact. The longer we leave something, the more issue there's going to be and the harder it's going to be to stop the momentum of climate change as it happens. Um, the positive I see is that we can do this because we did it with COVID. So I remember clearly watching a news report in February 
late January, early February, 2020, about this, this virus that was around and, you know, nobody quite knew where it was coming from. And then within six weeks in the UK, we're in full lockdown and everybody's behavior had changed and everybody was on board because all of a sudden there was a danger to our health. And then you can look at it from a different perspective and go, climate change is the biggest danger to our health we will have in the next decade. But because it's not a pressing urgency, not a lot seems to be done on the wider scale. So I really wish we could take all of that kind of mindset of what we saw during COVID across the world with how things changed quickly and how governments talk to each other. There was so much, you know, cross-pollination of information and data and best practice and things that didn't go so well. And everybody was sharing information on a global scale. And as soon as COVID became less of an issue, still is a huge issue, everybody just went back to business as usual. And for me, we need to take that learning on to how we can work with climate change as well. If something is cheap, somebody or something is paying somewhere. So it might be the fact that the labor is exploited or very, very lowly paid. It might be that the toxins that got into the dyeing or the fabrication of the clothing or the product are not being treated properly. They're entering straight into our waterways. So the environment is paying. So, you know, if it's cheap, it costs somewhere else for sure. And we see online retailers now that can see something by another, like by a fashion designer, for, for example, and, you know, have a factory in the Far East, remake those designs and have them on the shelf within days. Because stuff's got to grow. And if it's an organic material, i.e. in the sense it might be cotton, um, it's got to grow somewhere. You know, if you've ever grown your own food, you know how hard it is to grow things. And then if it's a, if it's a synthetic, Basically, you're wearing a plastic. You're wearing a material that, in theory, is going to last forever. So isn't it crazy that we've taken basically the fossil fuels, turned it into a fibre, and then somebody's going to wear something once and it end up in landfill, incineration, or dumped in the Atacama Desert, which is something we've seen a lot of images of textiles that are being dumped in places of intense natural beauty and diversity for the sake of a couple of wares and something naughty. Fast fashion has got to stop. When you think about how much something costs, instead of thinking, oh, wow, that's great. It only costs three quid as a t-shirt or something. You could go, oh, that only costs three quid. It should be, well, how can it only cost three pounds? Why does it only cost three pounds? We should be asking more questions rather than just thinking, oh, great, it's cheap. Because, yeah, there's so much that's hidden. And what I love about circularity is that hopefully that will make a lot more of the supply chain transparent. So whether it's through companies that are maybe B corporations who have got a very, you know, very stringent requirement for people that actually become a B Corp and you can go and look in whatever country you're in and look at the B Corps and the companies are large or small, but they are basically audited to make sure that their supply chain as well as everything else is planet as well as people profit, et cetera. And if you're not sure about a company, look at their environmental policy and really, really dig into it. And if it's really loose terms saying we aim to be sustainable, you could go, what does that mean? Is there any statistics? What is your baseline? What have you done? Speak more about this whole industrial ecology and maybe some other factory models or businesses where they're really doing the right thing. 
Oh, so there's some great examples of different products in different ways. What um, what is also encouraging to see, so from the technology perspective, we haven't talked about tech so much yet. And the companies that are actually looking at how their products can be dismantled or repaired, which is great. And also they're designed in such a way that you can remove or upgrade elements according to your needs. So instead of it just being a blanket product that is made, um, that then you have to fit your life to, we've seen products that are maybe adjustable. So it's an element that you can upgrade the memory or upgrade the camera. You can just plug in a new module and the Fairphone is designed very much similar to like a Lego. Anybody can open it up. There is no issues with getting access. Whereas at the moment, if I was to undo my iPhone, um, this older model, I'd have a bit of a job. I'd need a special screwdriver. I'd have to remove different elements and then it would void the warranty. Whereas with something like the Fairphone, they are saying, yeah, open it up, take a look, look at all the modules, unplug one, plug a new one in. And it's like the ownership of things I think is going to change a lot with technology. We've also got um, examples of maybe, again, in the tech sphere, we've got Gerard Street, which is in the Netherlands, and they are a headphone brand. And instead of um, you buying the headphones and then, you know, somebody will sit on them or they'll get wet or whatever and they break. They offer a repair service for the headphones. So you are buying a circular model. You're not just buying a product. And they actually have a rental scheme as well. So you can rent the product for them. And then if it's not fit for purpose, doesn't fit your life anymore, you can swap it up. Uh, Mud Jeans are another one that's doing a rental model. Um, so there's lots of things that are sort of within the circular economy that are coming out and spurring out these new business models in really interesting ways. And so as you think about the future, what were some teachers or life lessons that were important to you as you reflect on the beauty and wonder of the natural world and the kind of planet that we're leaving for the next generation? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, wow. What a lovely question. I quite often talk about how you protect what you love. And I'm very lucky growing up in Brighton in the UK. I'm right on the seafront. And I'm very lucky that I did have that as an upbringing. And that's something that I would want all of the next generations to have in some way or another, to have the ability to access and be amazed by how staggeringly beautiful, complicated, awful in some ways, and just brutal the natural world is. But then really sit and think about how the natural world just gets on and does it. And every species is benefited from everybody else. And you could remove humans from that equation and nature would just carry on doing its thing. So that's what I would love for people to see and to realize is that nature is so incredibly beautiful and diverse. And so are we. So how can we take the beauty and diversity of the natural world and actually learn a lot more and stop thinking we're separate from nature because we are pretty much we are all part of that same biosphere on the planet. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.